Our scripture reading this morning is taken from John uh, chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading from uh, verses 1 uh, through 12 in John chapter 2. You can follow along if you have uh, your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen, uh, or you can just listen. Hear God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful for your word. We are thankful that when we approach it, we recognize that uh, it is a book that uh, comes with the power of your spirit. And uh, whenever we read uh, in it, you change our hearts. Whenever Jesus speaks, he changes our hearts. So we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning and change us as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you know, uh, if you've been with us, you'll know we're in the middle of a series uh, all about feasting. We're looking at uh, meals all throughout the Gospels of Jesus Christ. And uh, There's a lot of people, I've been doing some reading this week, there's a lot of people that believe that there has been a great decline in feasting in uh, American culture, and many of them believe that we are worse off because of it. Uh, One author in particular, a guy named Robert Putnam, uh, is a sociologist and has done all sorts of research, and and he discovered uh, in one of his books that there has been a 33% decline in families eating with one another over the past couple decades. And he also looked at at feasting beyond just the families. He talks about how people used to have people over for dinner all the time and they would prepare meals, but over the past couple decades, that has reduced by 45%. People just don't have people over to eat meals anymore. Now, he's not the only one uh, that's done this research. There's another researcher uh, who wrote a book called Food for Life, and And he said that the average length of an American dinner, even though we're not eating with one another as much anymore, even when we do, that the average length of that dinner has been reduced down to only about 20 minutes. And what they all argue is that something has been lost in our culture because of it. All these authors argue that so much more social and familial capital could be built if we just spent some time to eat together more. 
If you look at the scriptures, we talked about this last week, we discover immediately that meals have an incredibly formative role all throughout the scriptures. Someone said that whenever Jesus sat down at a meal, it was like a meal of enacted grace. And what they meant by that is that meals, at least in the gospel, were this incredibly robust picture of what the nature of God's kingdom is really all about. They exemplified or pictured the nature of the good news of the gospel. If you were with us uh, last week, we looked at a story where uh, Jesus called one of his first disciples, a man named Levi. And what you discovered about his story and many of the other times that Jesus called his first disciples is he called them from their places of work to follow him, and then he subsequently feasted with them. He had a, a great meal with them. And, and what we saw last week is that drew the, the ire of the religious people of Jesus' day. They were angry with Jesus because who he ate with. And it gave Jesus an opportunity to talk about the very nature of his kingdom. He said that he came to save sinners. We saw that last week. Today, as we look at this passage, we see Jesus feasting again. Except this time he chose a meal or a great feast to be the occasion for his first miracle. If you read the Gospels, you'll see that that Jesus performed all sorts of miracles. These were kind of extraordinary events or extraordinary things that Jesus did. And they were all to be signs. They They were signs that authenticated who Jesus was. He came and he claimed to be God. And because of that, he did all these miracles to authenticate his message. But he also used those miracles to to really reveal the actual character of God, to tell us in, in a very tangible way what God is like and what he is all about. And I think when we look at this story this morning, it reveals three really powerful things about the character of the God that we read about in the scriptures, the character of the God that we worship. And I think the first thing we see is that when we worship, we worship a God of simple compassion. Look at verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now in Jesus' day, weddings were probably the most elaborate celebrations that would happen, especially in a small town or a small village like the village of Cana that we read about in this story. Cana was uh, just a really short trip from Nazareth, which we learn about in the Gospels, is the place in which Jesus grew up. It was his hometown. And because Mary is the one coming to Jesus with this request, many people believe that this was a family wedding. So Jesus' family was there. He was there with his disciples, his family, his aunts and uncles, all his extended relatives. This was a family wedding, and that's why Mary was involved in all of the details. Now, weddings in Jesus' day were incredibly elaborate ceremonies, as we said before. They would follow what was a year-long betrothal or, or an engagement period would be our equivalent 
And after that year-long betrothal, uh, there would be processions all throughout the village. And after those processions, there would be an elaborate feast. And sometimes those feasts, feasts could last over a week long. Imagine that wedding reception that lasted an entire week. And that's what it was in Jesus' day. It was, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to then provide this great feast and this elaborate celebration. I was talking to a friend not long ago, and uh, in some ways she was bemoaning the fact that she was a part of, of a, wedding, uh, a, a wedding party because of how much it was costing her throughout the process. And she and I were talking about that, and when we talked about the fact that, that an, an average American wedding now costs about $35,000. That's, it makes me frightened for the two daughters that I have that are growing up. I feel like I need to start saving now. Well, they may not have been that expensive in Jesus' day, but they were just as elaborate then as they are today. After the processional, there would be this great feast. And as I mentioned, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide all the means for this feast. They would need to provide the food and the drink. And there was a lot of pressure associated with it because in Jesus' day, hospitality was in many ways a matter of life and death. And if you were inhospitable, it was a shame to you and your family because hospitality was considered to be a sacred act. So in our story, when Mary comes to Jesus, she comes to him because the unthinkable has happened. The feast is still going on. People are celebrating, but the wine has run out. And it might be hard for you and I to understand, but this could have been a tremendous source of shame for the hosts and for this family. In many ways, if the wine ran out, they would be disgraced in front of the whole town and they would have to bear that public shame for the rest of their lives. So isn't it interesting that Jesus chooses this particular moment to perform his very first miracle. You see, from a modern standpoint, if we were in Jesus' day, from a modern standpoint, we would think that he had it all backwards. Because if Jesus was about to reveal himself as God in the flesh, wouldn't he want to hire a PR firm to help him with this announcement, or at least a social media director to be there snapping pictures of what was happening? Wouldn't you think that if it was Jesus' first miracle, he'd want to do it in the most public of ways so he could get the most bang for his buck? Wouldn't you think that the first miracle would have its most greatest effect if it was on display for all of the public to see? But instead, what you get a sense of in this story is that only a handful of people would have even witnessed this miracle. And most of the guests that were there that day probably had no idea what had just happened behind the scenes. So what the passage tells us is that God is not like us. It tells us that he is a God of simple compassion. His first earthly miracle was to save a very simple couple from social embarrassment and disgrace. Only a handful of people would have actually known what would have happened. 
You see, all throughout the Bible, we get a sense of the, the bigness or the transcendence or the great power of God. We read stories about floods and earthquakes, about plagues and the angel of death and the parting of the Red Sea. We read stories about uh, the sun standing still in the sky and armies being decimated in front of the power of God. And yet here Jesus comes in the flesh and chooses to display His very first miracle in the context of a simple couple in a simple town caught in the middle of a simple crisis. See, Jesus came to show us that God is transcendent, but also that he is intimate. He is a God of very simple compassion. I think the second thing it reveals to us about God is that he is a God of super abundant grace. Look at verse 6. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now no detail in the Gospels is a throwaway detail. Everything matters, and the Gospel writers intended it to be that way. And John makes sure to mention to us that these were stone jars that had been used for Jewish rites of purification. You see, in in Jesus' day, the Jews had developed a pretty elaborate system of laws and rites that were associated with all sorts of purity and cleanliness. In fact, the Pharisees, in our story last week we saw, couldn't believe that Jesus feasted with sinners. Why? Because it would compromise his cleanliness as a teacher and as a rabbi. And so there were all these elaborate systems of cleanings and washings that involved really every area of their lives. And with every one of those cleanings, the Jews would know that it was their responsibility to keep themselves clean, to wash away their sins, to maintain the purity of their souls as best as they could do. And it was even significant that the jars were made of stone here and not clay, because clay was known to be a contaminant But stone was known to be clean and would keep water clean. It was a pure substance. And so these jars were used for that sort of purification. They were used to make oneself clean. And then Jesus comes in in our story and he ruins them. By turning the water into wine, Jesus ruins the ritual cleanliness of these vessels. And of course, there is meaning behind that. Because what Jesus is saying is he's saying that I have come to rewrite what everyone thinks about the idea of cleanliness and purity. He comes saying that cleanliness is not about ritual. It's not about performance. It's not about somehow having our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds. It isn't even about earning our stripes or earning our way back to God by trying harder. Instead, it is about being swept up in the superabundance of God's grace. 
In fact, that idea of superabundant grace is a common theme all throughout John's gospel. Now think about it for a minute. Do the math for a second. There are uh, these jars, each one held about 20 to 30 gallons of liquid, and there were uh, six of them, John tells us. So this means when Jesus performed this miracle, he produced somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. No, no wedding party in human history could drink that much wine. It was an absolutely absurd amount of wine. So what is Jesus telling us? He's telling us that when we accept his gift of grace, he doesn't just give us grace in drips and drags. He pours it into our lives abundantly. His grace is like drinking from a fire hose. It absolutely overwhelms our souls. You see, many of us live under the presumption that God could never forgive us. That somehow our sins are just a little bit too much to be forgiven. Others live under the presumption that God just kind of begrudgingly tolerates us, secretly hoping that somehow we can get ourselves together at some point. But what this miracle reminds us is that God instead delights to overwhelm us with a never-exhausting supply, a super-abundant nature of His grace. So what we see here is that God is a God of simple compassion. He's a God of super-abundant grace. But finally, He is a God of celebration. Verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You see, Jesus doesn't just supply more wine than anyone could possibly drink. But what John tells us is it is also the wine of finest of quality. People would obviously often serve the cheap wine at the end of the wedding feast. They figured, why waste good wine when everybody's palate has gotten a little sloppy by that point? And so a host would, would turn the volume down on the celebration, but not Jesus. You see, many Christians believe that a pious spirituality is always being reserved and composed. We need not show too much desire or too much emotion or too much passion. Uh, Ronald Rollheiser is a, is a writer, and he told the story uh, about a um, nun who came from a very strict order. And uh, the nun signed up to go to this uh, spiritual retreat in Bruges, which is a, a beach resort in Belgium. And uh, she went on this, on this retreat, and uh, it was a working retreat and a time of spiritual meditation. It was right up her alley. But at the very end of the spiritual retreat, the host who was hosting this retreat 
decided that he wanted to throw an elaborate feast and an elaborate celebration. So he pulled out no stops. It was the the finest food and the finest wine, and the feast went on for hours and hours. And the story is told that the nun couldn't believe that they were doing this. She, she resented the fact that so much, uh, so much money was spent on all this food and so much money was spent on all this wine. So instead what she chose to do is just sit in her room and brood. She sat in her room and fasted and judged everybody else who sat at that meal and feasted and thought, and thought all over about how this money could have been used to care for the poor and the needy in their midst. And friends, that is often what we think of when we think about pious spirituality. But what our passage tells us is that Jesus will have none of it. Isn't it interesting that for his first miracle, Jesus didn't turn the volume down on the celebration. Instead, he cranked it up about as loud as it could go. And what he is saying is that because he is a God of simple compassion, because he is a God of super abundant grace, then that means he is a God of celebration. So friends, if you are here and you are still weighing the claims of Jesus, wondering whether or not to place your faith in him, know that Jesus isn't inviting you to some sort of dour, stoic, or no fun existence. Instead, Jesus invites you in to a celebration. He invites you to experience simple compassion and super abundance of grace that overwhelms you. But if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then what this story tells us is that you should be the most celebratory person that you know. If you have received the simple compassion of Jesus, if you've experienced the superabundance of his grace, then you've been welcomed into the table. You've been welcomed in to the celebration. Sure, there's going to be times where you face disruption and difficulty and challenge. But your destiny is ultimately about another wedding. The marriage feast of the Lamb. And this is the moment when God will fully consummate his relationship with his people. And that celebration will not just last for one week Or one evening, it will last for all of eternity. Friends, this is your future. So start drinking in the celebration now. Let's pray.